0: To you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers, their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce, their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hands, your hand will be on the neck of your enemies, your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to arouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, the robes, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend towards Sidon. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down among the sheep pens. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, He will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a snake by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backward. I look for your deliverance, Lord. Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders and he will attack them at their heels Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful forms. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your Father's God who helps you, because of the Almighty who blesses you, with blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below, blessings of the breast and womb. Your Father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey. In the evening he divides the plunder. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. So we've been looking in this preaching series at one family, the, the family of Israel, we've been looking at these brothers and a lot of that's focused on the story of of Joseph and what we've been seeing is how God works out his plan in this world even through actions of people that aren't entirely holy, even in difficult situations, even in sinful motives, God's plan still works out and so this is, a, this is a slightly unusual chapter in, in terms of this is at the end of the book and it's looking forward. This isn't reflecting on what's happened. This is, this is Jacob speaking to his children and prophesying. He's bringing a blessing or curse but he's, he's looking forward. He says this is what's going to happen in the days ahead. And there's that sense of He's speaking to them directly, but it's looking beyond it's looking to the tribes it's looking to the, to the nation of Israel when they inherit the promised land and um, well, it could be very easy for me to go through each different blessing or curse and give you all a lecture on how it's kind of worked out and we're not going to do that because um, you know we don't want to be here all day so I'm going to look at just a couple we're going to look at four different passages or four different phrases or prophecies that Jacob gives, how they worked out, and actually let, let's pull a, a kind of bigger theme message through from that. So this, this follows on pretty directly from chapter 48, So we had Rich last week, and the situation was Jacob's old and he is dying. He's on his deathbed, and so Joseph brought Ephraim and Manasseh last week. We saw how Ephraim was actually... Given the rights of the firstborn and it's from there that, that this chapter follows on Jacob is still dying, he's still in his bed and this is why he's gathered his sons around and he's looking forward, he's saying to them, okay, there's more than just my life, we're, we're looking on and that's what we're going to do, so we'll start with Reuben and what Jacob said to Reuben was this they said, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch and defiled it. This starts out fairly positive. If you were Reuben, you don't see the whole of this, you, you just get it as your father speaks it to you. And so when you start off, the first few lines, pretty good. Reuben, you were my firstborn, okay, factual. My might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. You're feeling fairly good about yourself. It then rapidly goes downhill. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. Reuben's had a fairly significant fall here. As the firstborn, there's a certain level of honor and expectation. Reuben would have been the one to carry on the responsibility of the family. As the firstborn, he'll have got more inheritance because he's the one who should be looking after his parents in their old age. He has that sense of honor. He is, he is the proof that actually Jacob could have children. And there is something special about that. But what we saw last week is Reuben's been replaced. Ephraim has been promoted to the top. He is the one who will have the Inheritance. He is the one who will be looking after his parents in the old age. And this is why Reuben has been replaced. In Genesis 35, there's just this one short verse. It says this. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Now, if you want to do something that you don't want your dad to find out about, sleeping with his concubine probably isn't the greatest plan because he's going to find out, as stated there. In fact, Bilhah is the mother of Dan and Naphtali. She becomes Jacob's wife. And so, by doing this act, Reuben, Reuben is in essence saying I am well, I'm the one to be in charge of this family. It's like my dad isn't really there anymore. I have that authority. I have that position. I have that place. All that is his is mine. That's what he's trying to say. He's leaving that mark but obviously Israel finds out about it. He knows that Reuben's done this and so by his action Reuben doesn't get much of a blessing. In fact Reuben gets a bit of a curse, you will no longer excel. What we see throughout this chapter then and what we see throughout the Old Testament is how the actions of these brothers, the founders of each tribe, has an effect on the outcome of that tribe at least 500 years later and then ongoing. We see that these actions and that these blessings and curses have a significant effect on what the nation of Israel shapes up like. And so what you'd have thought with the firstborn is they would be the kind of the name of that nation, Reuben. You'd think Reuben would be synonymous with Israel. But as we saw last week, the northern tribes of Israel, once the kingdom splits, they're often referred to as Ephraim because... Ephraim replaced Reuben as the firstborn. The tribe of Reuben, therefore, isn't as significant as you'd have expect them to be. But in spite of Reuben's actions and sinfulness, the promises of God still work out. The children of Israel still inherit the promised land and the tribes still live there. Next, we'll look at Simeon and Levi. So they are verses five to seven. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Now again when we look further back in Genesis in Genesis chapter 34 we see a story about how uh, Simeon and Levi's sister was raped by Shechem and what Simeon and Levi did is they went beyond seeking justice to seeking revenge so it is understandable in that situation for justice to want to be dealt out I think all of us would agree with that but they They went beyond that. They looked beyond justice to vengeance, to making sure that how they're feeling, what is going against them, is repaid upon the Shechemites. And so what happened is when Shechem approached the family of Israel and said, kind of like your sister, I know I've done something wrong, let's unite our families. They said, great, but circumcise all of your men in your city. This led to uh, a period of weakness for the men in that city, shall we say. And so on the third day, while they were still struggling, Levi and Simeon slaughtered them. One man had committed a sin, a whole city slaughtered because of their vengeance. And Israel said to them, he said, actually, it's that sense of your vengeance, your need for revenge was so unthought of. You put our family in trouble. Because if all these other tribes, who are now afraid of us, unite together, they could wipe us out. And they were unrepentant about it. They were unrepentant because, would you see our sister treated like that? For them, it was, our vengeance is just. But don't, I don't know, don't believe what Hollywood tells you. Revenge and justice are not the same thing. And so here, their anger and their need for vengeance affects how their tribes are blessed moving forward. And we have a map to demonstrate this. This is a map showing the tribes of Israel, how they were distributed throughout the nation of Israel. Um, You may or may not be able to read it, I'll point out the appropriate bits. Now, when Jacob promises to these brothers that we'll be scattered throughout Israel um, this worked out in two very different ways for each tribe so for Levi Levi they became the kind of, they became the priestly tribe which meant they got no land inheritance in the promised land if you were to actually see the words on this map they wouldn't be an area for the tribe of Levi because they are scattered. They're scattered throughout Israel. And to some degree, that's because they have the honorable position of being the priests. But at the same time, Jacob's promise works out. What he said to them of you being scattered, it's demonstrated in that they have no inheritance. Simeon is slightly different. Simeon do have an inheritance. And they are, oh yes, they are here. This is Simeon. They are completely surrounded by Judah. They're bordered. They're kind of landlocked by Judah, if that makes sense. And so, at first, they have inheritance in the land. But as we see as the Old Testament progresses, Simeon are kind of consumed by Judah. The southern kingdom, when it refers to Judah, well, it's Judah and Simeon, but The borders blur over time. They are scattered. They no longer have that place because they are consumed by their greater tribe fully surrounding them. They end up scattered. But again, what we're seeing is the actions of these brothers affecting the long-term future of their tribe. Next, Joseph, we'll get more positive from here. Verses 22 to 26, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring, whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady and his arms stayed limber. Let's go through this bit by bit. We're starting off in the present. Jacob, sorry, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. Joseph, when Jacob is speaking to him, is the prime minister of Egypt. He's done pretty well for himself. He is fruitful. He has children. He has a wife. He has riches. He has a land. He has done okay. And so he is fruitful. And so even... Ephraim's name is twice fruitful. Jacob acknowledges that Joseph has done well in Egypt. We go on from the present then to the past. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber. As we've been following this series, we've seen what happened to Joseph. We've seen how his brothers plotted against him and sold him into slavery. We've seen how he's been falsely accused and therefore imprisoned because of it. He's been under attack for quite a lot of his life. But he remains steady. Why did he remain steady? He remains steady because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the almighty who blesses you, With blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below, blessings of the breast and womb. This is why he stayed steady, because he believed in God. He trusted God, and God was with him. He stayed steady because he had faith. He had faith that God would work it all out. He had faith that God would fulfill his promises. And we see a father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. He's still the favorite kid, <laughs> you can tell that. But it's this sense of going forward. What Jacob wants is just all the blessings, as much as you can on Joseph. That is what it's going for. But. Actually, there's that sense of the faithfulness of Joseph as what, is what has led him to this point. God's hand has been on him and with him. And again, this will shape things going forward. And we saw that more in chapter 48 with Ephraim and Manasseh being blessed. How the tribe of Manasseh actually gets a huge portion of the land of Israel. The final tribe we'll look at then is Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouch, crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to arouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch, he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes, his eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Now Judah, again, through these stories in Genesis, Judah's a good illustration for us because he turns it around. Judah did not start off great. He was still involved with the plot with his brothers to kill Joseph. He also had an incident with his daughter-in-law, shall we say, which he didn't necessarily come out of the greatest. But what did happen is he realized where he'd been wrong to the extent that his character changed so much that later on we see Judah saying to his father, let's take Benjamin to Egypt, but if anything happens to the boy, my life will be forfeit. He, he's sacrificing himself, so instead of being this proud man beforehand, he's been humbled to this point of laying down his life. And with that, there comes quite a turnaround. This promise for Judah, it's impressive and it's messianic. It points towards the Messiah to come. It points towards something greater. In in the first bit of verse 8, it says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Now, if you remember way back, when we first started and the dream of Joseph about all his brothers bowing down to him. There's an interesting parallel here. And some people would say that actually, Joseph is that forefiguring of Jesus. There are shadows of what happens in Joseph's life that speak of Jesus to come and then, actually when Judah is promised about the Messiah, we see that echo again. Your father's sons will bow down to you, your brothers will bow down. And we see that coming in Jesus. Ancient Christians would have actually thought that that was the disciples bowing down. We generally think, you know, we are the adopted brothers and sisters of Jesus and we bow down to him too. There's many layers to how it all works out but it all points to him. And then we see that the classic bit where the, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his, pointing towards a ruler who will reign forever, that all the nations will bow down to. This is why when we see in the New Testament, you see the disciples had a fairly big hope for Israel, who were currently an occupied nation in a very small part of the Mediterranean. They expected world domination at some point all the nations to bow down to them. What we see actually is, is God who is over all the earth, coming to earth, and all of the nations bowing down to him who has broken sin. Now the final bit of that promise to Judah, it sounds a bit weird. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. This is talking about abundance, this is talking about a promise, where riches abound. Wine, pretty valuable back then, and if you own a vineyard, vines are fairly precious to you. You do not tie a donkey to a vine, you tie a donkey to a post, donkey doesn't eat the post. If you tie a donkey to a vine, donkey eats grapes, donkey eats the vine, you lose your wine. But there is such abundance here illustrated that go ahead, tie your donkey to the vine. It doesn't matter. We've got plenty. The same verse as well. He will wash his garments in wine, in, sorry, his robes in the blood of grapes. This is not biblical advice for good housekeeping. This is not go home, crack open a bottle of red and dunk your jeans in it. This is actually talking about, again, the abundance that is promised, how Wine will be so overflowing that you can use it to replace wash water. That is the level of abundance that is promised when this Messiah comes. It speaks of health as well, and his eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. It's so much to look forward to. This is such a rich promise that Jacob gives to Judah. But again, we see how actions have affected the promises that the brothers would get, but they do not affect the outcome in that what God promised still comes around. And I like to think of it a little bit like Russian dolls, where, you know the dolls where you get one little one and they get a bigger one in, fits over it and then an even bigger one that fits over that, they're all within each other. And, and so these promises are like the little doll. But they are contained by a larger promise. And we see that in the promises that God has given to Jacob and Abraham. In Genesis 48, verses 3 to 4, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz and in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give This land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. And that echoes the promise that Abraham got in Genesis 13, verses 14 to 17. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are, to the north and the south, to the east and the west. All the land that you see I will give to you, and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. God promised to, sorry, I should put that on earlier. God promised to Abraham and Jacob that they were going to inherit this land. That is the, the kind of middle-sized doll encapsulating all the other promises that we see to the brothers because God still works out that promise God gives them the promised land but then what happens with the brothers is we see just how that takes form we see how that is affected but God never went back on his promise using the Russian doll analogy there's still the biggest doll to go and This doll, this promise, this curse, I would say is the fall. In Genesis 3, we see the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. We see them have one rule, don't eat that fruit. We see what happens, they eat the fruit. They disobey God. When they disobey God, when they sin against him, their actions have a consequence. We see in Genesis 3 that God both curses and gives a promise in that time. So the curses for the woman are painful childbirth, those kind of things. For men it is toil and work in the ground, that's what he says to Adam. What he says to the serpent though is this, Genesis three fourteen to 15. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, in this setting, if you read those early chapters of Genesis, you see that actually the serpent represents the devil, and how what we see here is another messianic promise. It is another look towards the one who is to come. It is another look to the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And just in the same way that the, the promises to the heads of the tribes, to the promises to the brothers shaped the outcome of their descendants in the same way the promise and the curse to Adam shaped the outcome for all of Adam's descendants which is humanity, which is all of us. All of us are under that promise and that curse. That curse and that promise is what brought death. Or more importantly, that sin Is what brought death to humanity Two levels of death That sense of physical death Where eventually we will all die But also spiritual death Where we are separated from God We are separated from our source From the one who made us But what we see here In amongst the curse is a promise God saying that there will be an end And so we look towards the one who would fulfill the promise and break the curse. Where all of us were under Adam, Jesus came. Jesus came and he broke the curse and he fulfilled the promise. He was the one who took sin and dealt with it. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says this, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That is the promise we as Christians now live under. Because of Adam's sin, all of us were condemned and we are are all sinners, we are all worthy of that same curse, we are all worthy of that separation from God and that is it. In Adam, We would try and appease God by doing what is right, but we would always fall short because we are not able to achieve those standards. We will always sin. But believing in Jesus, because of all that Jesus has done, that changes everything. Jesus came. He lived a holy life. And whereas... Whereas one sin was enough to condemn the whole of humanity, what we see in Jesus is all sins piled upon him brought salvation for all of us. The perfect man dying on the cross. God descending down to earth in order to save us. There's that sense of, we see in these promises how they are related to family line. We see how if you're related to any of the brothers, then that would affect your tribe and that would affect your outcome. We see your relation to Abraham and how that would affect your promise. And then we see our relation to Adam. We are all descended from him and therefore we were in that. But what happens is in the work of Jesus, Jesus came, he broke the curse, he lifted our sin from us, that was which was separating us from God, and that moved us. God adopted us so we were under Adam. Whereas, actually, when we believe in Jesus, what happens is we, we become in God's family. We are adopted. We are changed. And we are made a new creation. So, that sinful nature in us, those things we inherited from Adam, they're no more. They're wiped away. Which means that we are no longer slaves to the sin that entraps us. It means we are free to not sin. And so, what we also see is that. Actually, our desire to do good, our motivation for doing good, isn't to try and do things that will save us. Our motivation to do good is actually because we love Him who is good. We want to do things that please God, not because it earns us anything, but because we we love Him, because we adore Him who has done everything for us. That is why holiness still counts. But there are still some truths today that we see in Genesis. Our actions still have consequence. We have been freely given all things, all these riches because of Jesus. But our behavior still has a consequence. It's a different consequence. Adam's sin caused separation from God. We no longer have that issue, our sin will no longer separate us from God because Jesus has taken that. There is no condemnation for us. But we still have to live with the reality. If, if I am a lazy husband and a lazy dad, if I am sinful in that, it's no good me just saying, it's grace. Get on with it. Zach can find his own food on the floor somewhere and you know we'll find money somewhere. Actually, I still need to do what is right. I still need to get a job, get some money in. I still need to provide for Zach, make sure he's not just eating stuff off the floor, that he actually has proper food. And in the same way, as Christians, we still look to live a holy life. Our actions and our sinfulness in this life can't just be swept under the carpet. Jesus has dealt with it. And because he's dealt with it, we have motivation to live a holy life. We have been given everything we need through the Holy Spirit to live a life worthy of our calling. And so we live in that in-between point where God has fully dealt with everything. Our sins don't count against us anymore. Our sins will not separate us from God. But we also live in this point where God's given us everything so that we can change. I wanna encourage you, actually, don't be lazy about your behavior, about our thought lives, about all of these things, because we are children of God. That is who we represent. That is who has adopted us. And if you, if you feel trapped in sin, if you feel trapped in something, that you think, I can't see any way out. Well, the truth of this matter is, Jesus has made your way out. God has done everything so that you can be free and free not to sin. Again, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 55 to 57 says this, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think this morning we saw, we saw God speaking to us, certainly with things like what Debbie brought and what what Tom brought. If you feel trapped, if there is something that God is putting his finger on in your life, that's not to bring condemnation. That's not to just show you how separate and far you are from God. That is a loving father saying to you, I wanna deal with that. I want to lovingly change you I want to refresh you and make you new, and that is what he does, he pours out his spirit upon us. We can be expectant that our God, our loving Father who paid everything, who gave everything for us, he wants to deal with us, he wants to be with us, he wants to draw close to us today.